Hello and welcome to On the Battlefield with Father Michael Marcantoni and me, Father Joseph Collins, where we are sharing the Christian message of hope and endurance amidst the struggles and suffering of life. Father Michael, good to be with you again. Christ is risen. Why don't you tell everyone where they can find us online and on social media? Truly is risen. Yes, of course. Uh, you can find us on our main hosting website, which is Anchor FM on the Battlefield on Anchor FM, and also over social media on the Battlefield Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And uh, Anchor FM also shares out over a variety of platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. So lots of places where you can find us and share. And on our Facebook page, uh, not only do we put up the podcast, but also related content. And we've actually gotten an increase of people sending in their questions and comments. And uh, and we do want to thank you for that because you dialoguing with us helps make this more of a conversation and less of a monologue. So keep writing in. Thank you. Yes, absolutely, everyone. Thank you for participating. Um, so today we are going to tease out a, it's a complex subject with, with a simple ish, simple-ish um, point Prime. to be made, right? A very pragmatic and practical point to be made. But we're going to talk about ways that the devil in, infiltrates our lives, how he finds ways into our lives, and and some of the things that we do that kind of allow him a backdoor entrance into our souls. Um, so, you know, I mean, we're all familiar with how evil some books are and some movies are, and they should be banned, right? Father Michael, just pile them up in, in the center of the city and we will have good old fashioned book burning because the book and the movie is evil. And if they were gone from our lives, our culture would just be sanctified again, right? Ah, uh, yes. I do hope our listeners uh, have caught on to your sarcasm. If you've been with us for this many episodes through, uh, you know that that is definitely not uh, the route we're actually going. But that is like the route that you see in in our society as a whole. And it really didn't start with cancel culture. Like I can remember uh, when we were growing up back in the 80s, there would always be a flurry of outrage over this type of music or that type of books. And I can remember, you know, my, my, my dad is, uh, my dad's a great fan of classic rock. And I can remember when we moved from, uh, from Baltimore to the South, having my first encounters as a young person with, uh, with Protestants and hearing that rock and roll was always and objectively from the devil. And I'm like, Bob Seger? Really? Like it, it didn't like it is like that doesn't sound like the things I've heard on the radio. And I grew up in the car, so I heard a lot of radio. Um so there's been this sort of culture of villainizing one form of media or another or books or movies or genres of music or whatever. There's been that culture of villainizing that for quite some time. And the problem there lies in there's an overstatement of the risk. Now, it should be said, right? Like our basic premise here is that there's nothing neutral. Nothing is spiritually neutral. Okay. So there's that. But on the other hand, not, not everything is in and of its essence, necessarily polarized outside of its use. So things don't exist outside of use and relationship to begin with, which is why that's possible. But for instance, right, like there was a, for instance, while let's say yoga may be very inappropriate for the Orthodox Christian, and it is inappropriate for the Orthodox Christian, um, you know, stretching if you if you're going to stretch your hamstrings out on your back out and it happens to be a similar type stretch that doesn't mean you're doing yoga and inviting the gods in like what are you doing you know so i guess what we're trying to say is i guess what we're trying to say is when we look at the various things that get scapegoated out in the world what makes them evil is what 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 if they if they are evil 
what makes them inroads of evil can be uh, the unrepentant, unaddressed sins within our soul. Now, it it should be said that there is definitely some media uh, that is objectively harmful. I mean, let's just say it, right? There are objectively movies and websites and media and books that simply have no proper place within the Christian life. Like they're, they're just flat out on the other side. And there are books and media and movies and, and, and hymns and songs that are objectively consecrated to Yahweh, that are objectively good. But then there's a whole lot of stuff that really depends on who's relating to it and how, but it will always exist within relationship. Um, so our big problem is, and, and this is what your, your kind of your joke at the beginning was getting at, is our big problem here is the very superficial approach of just looking at things that might be kind of questionable saying, okay, we'll, we'll cancel out this from the world. We'll ban this out from the world, but then not addressing the sin and malaise in my soul, you know? So like if I say, all right, well, you're not reading these kinds of, uh, of magic and fantasy novels. They're out, but I'm still gossipy and, uh, I backbitey and bitter and I don't forgive. And you know, my eyes are lustful or I'm greedy. That's a much bigger inroads for the devil than, like your favorite fantasy, sci-fi, magic and sorcery book, you know? So that's my point. That's our point. It's it's not that there are, it's not there, then yes, none of these things are neutral. They do exist on the continuum of use. However, comma, the real problem is the fact that the real inroads for the devil is that um, we're allowing the great bevy of sins to go unaddressed and, and, and the lust and anger and bitterness and so forth within my soul goes unaddressed. And that's the devil's real foothold in our lives. Um, yes, there are some things that are just objectively, like you'd say, yeah, going to X website is always objectively sinful and not good for a Christian. Um, and yes, like there's and on the other side, praying the paraclesi is always good. There's not a bad way to pray. There's not a bad time to pray, pray the paraclesi. Like that's always an objective good. But a great, th- a great deal of things become, uh, in, in, become one or the other through their use. Uh, and that's why St. Maximus the con- Confessor says that what makes things evil is their misuse. Uh, so you had a pretty good example for this. What, what were some, I, I don't want to, ramble on too long. You had a pretty good example. Let's talk to some of the things you were tussing out as we were talking and prepping for this episode. Just so everybody knows, like we led in, this is a very complex topic. And it's, it's, I think the thing that we tend to do because life and complex ideas are hard to deal with and require a lot of mental energy, it's a lot easier just to create a binary situation, you know, if if um, this book has wizards and witches and XYZ in it and witches and wizards and XYZ are bad, therefore the book is bad. And if the book is bad, it is bad for society. And now it's my, I'm going to die on the hill of getting rid of this book. And, and we, what we're arguing is don't die on that hill because on that hill is is a place where the devil can do an end around and infiltrate your life and affect you in ways that are going to harm your soul a lot more than that getting rid of that darn book is going to do you know and the one of the things that we talked about in prep was alcohol i mean alcohol is such a great example of of something that if misused can be horribly harmful for individuals, families, and society. However, alcohol in and of itself is not bad. Christ himself drank wine. Paul told Timothy to drink for his stomach, for his incontinence in his stomach, whatever issue he had. We're told to drink and to be merry and to use wine to gladden the heart of man. We hear this in the Psalms. Um, So, 
where do where where's the balance in that and and where we want to go with this episode is is to acknowledge yes that certain things for certain people can most certainly be bad for the alcoholic alcohol is a non-starter they cannot have it they don't sit at taverns they don't go to parties uh the person trying to quit smoking cigarettes the same uh, you have a higher chance of quitting once you've started the process of quitting to stay quit if you don't go to smoky bars hang out with people that smoke uh get into incredibly stressful situations so it, there is nothing neutral and those things can bring demonic activity and oppression into the life of those afflicted by them but that doesn't mean that we don't need to go on a crusade like uh the women's tolerance group did back uh, what was it in the 20s when prohibition came around and seek to destroy alcohol's presence in our society forever because look at what it what that did look at the the pushback that they got so in 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 being a teetotaler what what sort of log do i have in my own eye that i can't see while i'm on this crusade to make sure that you that we can get that splinter out of your your eye and that again a complex idea but something totally worth looking at because there's something within my soul that's neglecting and that satan and the demons are able to leverage and take advantage of and do great harm uh, through through my blindness and he's able to infiltrate my life through my blindness to my own sin while i'm out there crusading to make sure that this one neutral thing or this thing that is either neutral or non-neutral depending on who's using it and how it's being used in most cases um and, and he can destroy uh, through these things well and you know when you're you know speaking of neutral it's like having a parked car like even a parked car isn't really it's not really in a neutral state like if you think about that like i remember when presbyter and the kids were in peru last time back in 2018 and they came back and i only drove my car i i came back first i was home for a month alone and i only drove my car during that month and when we started her van back up like i guess the the rotors or something had rusted a great deal so i actually had to plow through some of that rush driving and so like the first half hour was it that they, they were screeching and everything till some of that rust cracked and it was really ugly like i didn't know if like the, and the van ended up being okay. But it, even then, even when it was just sitting in the driveway, it turns out it wasn't in a neutral state. There was still pressure being put on the wheels. The The driveway had a slant. So, you know, the so there was, so there's stress on the bearings. There's moisture getting into the rotors. It's not getting worked out and things like that. So the vehicle was in the process of breaking down. I mean, you leave a car sitting in the lawn long enough and it's no longer an okay car. Um, so I think with your teetotaler example, if you're going to die on a hill, I was thinking this while you're saying, if you're going to die on a hill, die on the hill of rectifying the sins in your life or of repentance. Why? Because people are, people will be drawn to that. People will see that they will hear the gospel that you want to preach because they see that you are sparing no pains to flesh it out in your own existence. And then they will all, then because of that, they will want to hear the rest of what you have to say. What happens with the teetotaler type, you bring up prohibition, is that you're looking and you're looking and saying, um, the this is the root of all of the evil uh, of these evils, and if we just remove it, everything will be okay. Well, it's not okay because the the anybody in in sobriety, anybody in recovery, will tell you that simply removing your drug of choice, whether it whether it's alcohol or narcotics, isn't the same thing as being sober. That's what's called being dry. You're, well, you're just white knuckling it, but you've had no change of character. So you're still behaving like an addict. You're still thinking like an addict. You're still prioritizing and on edge like an addict. Being sober is involves having a change of mind, metania, change of heart to where you are no longer engaging in the attitudes and thought patterns and priorities and behaviors that made that fed into your drinking being a problem and becoming unmanageable to begin with so you don't like like one of the things that one of the things that any good sponsor will tell 
his sponsee in recovery is that like that relapse starts with resentment. The more that unchecked resentments become relapse. Like having this stuff that you feel bitter over and then you feel justified in being bitter over it will lead to you uh, feeling like you deserve some self-medication. So that's where your teetotaler is for our perspective is off is off base. Because if you don't address the stuff that's wrong in your own heart and soul, uh, you could remove all the booze in the world and you're still going to get the there's not going to be a lesser amount of evil uh the you know the the teetotaler acts as if you or not just the teetotaler the book burner the cancel culture person the whatever you know acts that if if we just remove this then the evil would go away and and the reality is the evil won't go away because the evil is in your is in your soul uh and it's in your unrepentance and that's what the gospel is there to address now in the process of that in the process of that, there are definitely people who, for a variety of reasons, need to address their own uh, address their own relationship to the topic and say, like Saint Paul, all things may be lawful, but not everything is beneficial. So, someone in so a sober person, someone in recovery, who is sober would probably would would likely not say that nobody ever anywhere should be able to enjoy a glass of wine with their steak because lots of people can do that without going crazy but the sober person in recovery is going to look and say i have no business enjoying a glass of wine with my steak um you know there are lots of other things for me to enjoy but someone who can enjoy it well okay but there's no reason for me to do that. And there's no reason for me to have it in my house, for instance, someone in recovery would say. But that's really different. That's looking and saying, what is my relationship to this thing? And how am I to use this thing? And the only way to use this thing in a beneficial way uh, is to not participate in it. But that doesn't mean nobody anywhere on the face of the earth can. And certain things function that way. Um, other things, like I said, you know, there's plenty, there, uh, there's... I think the things that are like objectionably not in line with Christ are pretty obvious for the most part. Like if I were to say certain websites that no Christian has any business visiting to, I don't have to say what kind of websites I'm talking about. We all know because there's just no context for that being appropriate for a Christian. But if I say, well, someone, you know, fam, you know if I say family has me over for Pascha, uh, Pasca meal, and you know the man or lady of the house has a half a glass of wine with their lamb. Well, okay, if they if they don't have a drinking problem, that's objectively fine for them. But someone in recovery has no business doing that. So, I, I think that's you know again, it, it's 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 the it's not simply the essence of the thing. It's what it, it's what is it's what is the relationship to it what is the participation in it and there's always participation so that doesn't so that's that's why it's not spiritually neutral um for the person in recovery not having that drink is the right type of participation you pass it by <laughs> but again it's but in the looking at the log in your own eye, you're not also not saying, well, nobody should be able to have a beer and watch the game. Well, no, other people aren't alcoholics. They can have a beer and watch the game because they really are just going to have a beer and watch the game. And for the person, like for the canceler, if we could, if we, if you will, for the canceler, there, there's there seems to be two reasons for the cancellation. Um, like for what I see, like the two different dynamics that work in my own life and that I see in other people's lives spiritually that the cause, or maybe three, let's say, say three, there's an actual, there's an actual justice in getting rid of the thing. Like to say, if porn were gone, I'll just say it. You didn't say it. Those sites need to go away because they're, they're objectively not good. Right. And when we're talking about something that's objectively evil, you can make that statement like abortion is always objectively evil. It's objectively evil. Right. Pornography is objectively evil. It should be gone. And all the things that go with it because those websites are a, a huge drive behind human trafficking. Again, 
all objectively evil. When you're looking at objective evils, you can and should say there's no reason to have to. There's no reason to tolerate this. There, correct. So you you have that. We have that, and then I think what happens there are then two ways that the devil can skew that truth. We've talked about this before. There's nothing that the devil likes more than to have a little bit of truth to to twist. So you have genuine objective evils that we should all push back on. And then there are things that are not neutral, but that may that definitely depend on how they're being used and who is using them. And then uh, we we either out of kind of a, a moralism say, well, these things are just bad. You know, we don't do these things because it's morally bad. And then we become the whitewashed sepulcher of Matthew 23. Woe to you hypocrites. You're beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, you're, you're ugly wretches, you're, you're whitewashed sepulchers, right? Full of the bones of dead men. Uh, so, so you have the moralist well, no, you know, but you're you're right. I mean, it, it's we we can become the the problem is again the problem the problem comes about when we're too busy locating the source of evil outside of ourselves and not in the lack of repentance and sin within our own heart. So, for example, the world's most prolific adult sites um, only exist because we don't repent of our lust. Like because we have unchecked lust, because we've given a pass to our indulgences as a society and unchecked lust, and we've kind of given it a wink and a nod. That's the only reason they exist. And even if you got rid of those sites, if you don't address that unrepentant, uh, that unrepentant sin uh, of lust in the heart, then it'll manifest in some other equally horrific form. So when you're looking at the means by which the evil manifests there's not like an acceptable way for that to happen that's why the the means is of secondary concern it's the problem that lies within that gives root to it so you know if we were if we truly took christ's words about fidelity and uh and not have you know that that lust of the eyes is equal to adultery if we truly took what he says about fidelity in our the use of our eyes for instance there would just simply be no place for those things to exist. But we've given a w- since, especially since the 1960s, not only, but we've given a wink and a nod to those types of indulgence. And so that's why these things exist, because we have allowed sin to remain unchecked. That's the real foothold of the devil. Yes, the website itself is objectively bad. The only reason that that objectively bad thing can exist and, and, and exist and exist for a long time is because we don't actually repent of our sins. That's the problem. And I think that's what you're getting at. That's how we become whitewashed tombs because you can whitewash the outside, but if you don't clean the inside of the plate and you leave the inside dirty and the outside, it looks okay. Well, guess what? It's just going to manifest in some other way, probably equally as horrific. Right. And so the the third way that I was I'm thinking about too is so you so you have the objective evil that is can be twisted into this kind of Christian moralism that you, that you just addressed very beautifully, and then the third way is when I have an issue with something myself, like say for example I have an issue with a specific kind of music, then because it. And then I can warp that in one of two ways. I go on a crusade to get rid of that kind of music for all people because all people suffer with my sin. But that doesn't force me to address my sin at all. It just it just takes me outside to see the evil see that the evil of that particular music is outside of myself and should be eradicated for all. Because if it was gone, then I would be better. Or I eliminate it from my life, which is a healthy thing, but don't address the sin in my life that made it evil to me. Um, like if there's a song that elicits a certain type of emotion within me or alcohol elicits emotions and desires within the alcoholic and you remove the alcohol, but you don't address the issue, like you said, that is within my soul, all you've done is remove the, the factor that, that excites the passions of my soul. But, and, and if I don't deal with those passions, I've got a really big issue. 
So the devil is very, how he infiltrates here, that word again, how he infiltrates can be very sneaky and diabolical. It can be devilish. And we need to be on our toes to see how it is that he's using external things to, to drive us toward our passions, to, to either overlook them or to see them as an external thing rather than truly introspecting and finding and seeking to annihilate and exercise those passions. Yeah, I mean, look, I I've, I kind of tiptoed around it earlier, but I mean, just speaking bluntly, I mean, you know, most people know, and most, and we've done a couple episodes on it, so our listeners probably know. I mean, you know, I'm in recovery, right? Like, I'm I've got a at this point in a few by the time this airs, I will have a solid 15 months sober, right? So, again, I, there's it's not the right thing for me to put to put my relationship and my sins on everybody else. So like, you know, when I got, I mean, I gave the example, but we'll say it plainly, right? Like I got invited by a wonderful family to Pasco, right? And we're, we're sitting at, we're, we're having our meal and I asked for, I quickly asked for coffee and a water. Why? Everyone else had, was having a very nice glass of wine with their meal and they had every right to do that because they can do that safely. They can do that safely. They don't have that problem. So I said, oh, what would you like? I would like some coffee. I would like a water. And I and I enjoyed the coffee and I enjoyed the water and I enjoyed their company. That's the right way for me to handle it. And I didn't tell – I don't think they know because we're only recently getting to know each other. Um, but that said, there's no, there's nothing wrong with them having the glass of wine with their lamb because they don't have my problem. Um, so it would also not be right for me to in for me to impose my it, it would not be right for me to impose my particular details of repentance on this issue on them when it doesn't apply to them. There's no reason for me to say everybody under this roof has to do has to relate to this this way because I have a particular problem. No, that would be wrong on my part. And the real problem that we have as recovering alcoholics, and this is what any successful recovery program insists on, is it's a spiritual, it's a spiritual problem that you're looking and the things that, that are connected to your uh, your alcoholism are resentment and selfishness and self-centeredness and everything else. And, and those things go unchecked. And if you don't change the way, if you don't have a change of mind and a change of heart, you'll just keep behaving that way, even without the alcohol. And that's what sponsors call being dry. And a dry person is just as awful as a drunk. Because they, they're they behaving and acting and relating in all the same dysfunctional ways. They just don't happen to have the chemical. And, and, and sometimes they're even more on edge because they crave it. Whereas someone who's truly gotten sober, um, they should be found to be you know, more serene, address the character defects and so forth and, and address the, and, and take accountability for themselves. And that's, that's what's in there. Well, I mean, it's kind of the same thing. We have our favorite sins. We have our lusts that we give a pass and a wink and a nod to, but if we're just, you know, dry drunks, right? If we're just dry on our sin, we're not really repentant. We just aren't doing it yet. Um, that doesn't make us virtuous. We're not behaving as Christians. And I think at the core root of our problem, what we're really trying to discuss is the fact that especially in American Christianity, we act as if we're behaving Christ-like just by avoiding the right things. That doesn't mean you're living in a Christian way. It just means you haven't done these things. There's a big difference between being a kleptomaniac who just doesn't have the opportunity to steal but would love to steal and being someone who is genuinely trustworthy and generous. Um. So it, it's, it's about, you know, it's about actually addressing the things in your soul that take care of the actual problem. Um, so like, I think that's what we're trying to get at. Yeah. Is that, that, is that, that's about what you're thinking? I mean, I don't know, you know? 
Yeah, it's it's a really important topic, and it is hard to address because it's so complex and it's so unique to to each and every one of us because our sins and our passions are unique to us and. There's a very deep truth to what we're we're trying to attack at its core, and it's something that I that we left off our last episode hinting at, and that we're still. And I think the reason that we're struggling with it so much is because we're in the process of doing it ourselves, so we don't have a, a final answer of how this looks played out outside of the saints, but in our own lives, it's. It's in the process of, of fighting. And I said this on, on Sunday to the kids. We have a children's homily toward the end of the liturgy. And I said to the children and then also to the adults that it's not good enough to live the Christian life the easy way. And what do I mean by the easy way? To take the gifts that God gave you and rest on the laurels of what was just given to you. I mean, uh, if you're naturally athletic and you don't ever push yourself to be a better athlete and to push through the pain and be the best athlete that you can, to dare to go out and be the best, to push through and to endure and to struggle through things that you're not good at, to, to make what you are good at even better. You, you sold yourself short. I would go farther. I'm sorry. I would jump in and go farther. I, I, I wouldn't say that it's hard to live the Christian life easily, like by, with ease, as you're saying. I would say it's impossible. Like if you're if right. you're, if, if you're if you feel like you can breathe, uh, you know, exhale deeply and put your feet up and you've got this. Uh, you've done something wrong. Like, but that's my point. That's yeah, my general that's, point that I was making to the kids. It's like, it, it's it's easy to do what was given to you. If you gave me ten dollars and you told me to go buy ten dollars worth of groceries, that's fine. But what happens if we need twenty dollars worth of groceries and I got to go out and earn the other ten dollars? And by earning those ten dollars, we're going to have we're going to have a banquet. We're going to feast and we're going to 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 push through and have to have what we should have. It's a weak analogy, but it's not good enough. And that's exactly what you said. It's not the Christian life because resting on your laurels and just doing what came easy is what we've called in the past Christian atheism. It, it, it denies the Christian life that has been set before us, which requires us to see our faults, to see our gifts, and to fight like crazy to attain unto sonship. It's, it's a genuine fight to actually become a Christian. And we get derailed all along the way by dying on all sorts of stupid hills, by assuming that I'm a good person because I'm out here fighting for, you know, I'm out on the street corner with a sign that says abortion is bad every Sunday. But every time I see a person walk by, I question the motive in their soul and I judge them and I condemn them. Oh, they're murderers. These are baby murderers. You know, there's there's a there's a there's a sin. There's a demonic presence in my soul as I'm out there fighting for the good. And while I'm out there fighting for the good, I myself am being lost. And we 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 have to see that. Yeah, and to that that's where that's where Christ would say we should do one without neglecting the other. Like when he talks to the Pharisees, he says, you know, you you tithe mint and dill and cumin but neglect the weightier matters of the law, mercy and justice and truth, you should have done one without neglecting the other. And for some reason in our modern American reading of the gospel, we hear that and go, okay, no need to tithe the mint and dill and cumin. That's not what Christ says. He says, do one without neglecting the other, because the weightier matters of the law give those other things their breadth and scope. And and that allows these more mundane parts of our Christian walk to have real spiritual vibrancy. So being attentive, for example, over the type of music that you pipe into your ears, um, if you're just being a dry drunk, if you're just being a, an unrepentant sinner and you're not even endeavoring to repent, then it's just like a miserable privation of something you'd rather listen to. But if you're actively 
living a life of repentance and seeking to actively turn your life towards Christ, and you say, these are the types of music that go with my expressed mission and goal, then it becomes a joyful thing and a beautiful thing. And it becomes something that you do because it's furthering the highest good in your life, which is drawing near to Jesus Christ. And then it's no longer a miserable privation. It's like, well, no, I don't want that. Like, I mean, my problem, right? Like when, you know, I had, I got, when I had to get sober, it was from alcohol. I don't have a drug problem. I've never tried drugs. Right. So if you asked me, um, you know, I'm, I'm not miserable to not do cocaine because I have no desire to do cocaine. You know, it's like, okay. Um, that not having that as part of my life isn't a miserable thing. And not having the alcohol in my life is not a miserable thing. It's just it's just a matter of looking and going, saying, look, why are we doing or not doing what we're doing? Um, so again, if you're coming in and you're saying, I'm going to not do this because, or I'm going to only listen to this music because it accords with my life of repentance, then that'll be a source of happiness and joy and beauty. Um, it's when we... It's when we neglect the weightier matters of the law and we just stop with the external and we say, oh, I guess we're done. No, now you're just going to be miserable with one less type of entertainment. Um, again, the, the, the non-weightier matters of the law, those aren't, in a, those aren't inessential. Our problem here is that we often stop there and we say, okay, you know, be, we, we stop there and then then we wonder why they don't have the the power and the meaning that we give them um, but if we're actively living repentant and people see that you know like even the cho- the choices of what we put in front of our eyes and in front of our ears correspond with that and we're happy to do it it's like don't you want to listen to this or don't you want to watch it no I'd really rather have the coffee in the water or I'd really rather listen to Byzantine chant really yes really and they see that it's a source of joy and beauty in your life, then people start to ask, wow, what is what has he got? What's really what has she got? Like and we admire that. But if they just if you just seem miserable and it's a source of uh, of contention, then it, it, the problem is that it sends the tacit message that the gospel leaves you miserable. And that's not what Christ wants either. It is definitely not what Jesus Christ wants for our lives. Um, I remember I was recently celebrated the, not to the day, but on, on the festal day, uh, the, or, the, the anniversary of my ordination to the priesthood. On the Sunday of the Murbearers, I was ordained to the priesthood. And on that day uh, is also my feast day. Uh, St. Joseph of Arimathea. And I remember when I was ordained, Archbishop Demetrios looked at me and he said, this word courage in English that is translated from tolmisas in the Greek is a bad translation. He said tolmisas is to dare. And he looked at me and he said, be daring when you preach the gospel. Preach the gospel with daring and courage, Father Joseph. And I, I, I make that, I recall that story because that's such an important story in my life because it, it draws my remembrance to the very fact that in, if I want to please Jesus Christ and I want to have joy in my life, if I want to be a truly faithful disciple of Jesus Christ, I have to dare to be more and I have to dare to see my sin. I have to dare to eradicate that sin. I have to dare to love the other. I have to dare to go out and be what he created me to be. And that's no small task. It's a whole lot easier to be like, I remember these two, a set of twins that I met a long time ago, elderly, and their claim to fame was that they were part of the women's temperance movement. And if you drank, man, if they even thought you might drink, they ended up not talking to you. They would remove you from their life because alcohol is that evil. They would cancel you. You were canceled, exactly. And they weren't Gen Z. They weren't millennials. No. The cancel culture is 
cancel culture today because for various reasons, but it's always existed. Yeah, well, it's easier to cancel. It's easier to cancel external stuff than to cancel your sins. And that's what we're talking about. Right. Because you don't have to dare to be better. You don't have to dare to admit your faults. You can be the, the moralist in your church, in your congregation. You can be the morally upright person that does everything that God ever expected of them. No, like Jesus with the rich young man, right? It's, he's what did he say? He's like, do all, do the law. I've done this since my youth, and Jesus. Well, said, no, have you, have you ever noticed though when you get those moralistic people, it's it's usually over time. It's usually less what they're doing and just more what they're avoiding. Because actually, living like Christ would involve daringly doing stuff and taking uh, a taking um, uh, an uh, you know an all daring accountability for yourself and changing the way you think and act and react they don't do much they just avoid stuff and it's not even avoiding the things that would harm their soul it's they avoid what others may view it's not even doing it's just not doing it really it's it's accomplishes so little and so like yeah yeah it's literal hypocrisy right Uh, if if you don't know out there in the audience uh, the hypocrite the word comes from ancient the Greek. Greek theater. It's ancient Greek theater. The the in there was one actor in ancient Greek theater in the beginning, and that actor was called the Hippocrates. And the Hippocrates used different masks or his different personas throughout the throughout the play or the tragedy or whatever he was doing. And he would put on a mask for Demeter. And then you'd put on a different mask for Jupiter or whatever. So that literally means one who hides behind masks. So you're right. It's not what they're out doing. It's what they're hiding from. And when, when, when I hide behind the crusade against alcohol or when I hide behind the crusade of, uh, oh, these people don't give them any money. They're just, they're evil and they're on the street corner and homeless because because they're evil and God has put them out or whatever. I'm, I'm not actually doing anything good. I'm hiding as a coward hides from actually daring to do the good. And that we have to be very cautious of that because it's a really easy way for the devil to infiltrate because it seems like we're doing good, yet we're not. We're well, and, yet, and, and, let me, and let me go a step farther too. Like when you're looking at when, when it's so funny. So when we take this sort of very superficial, externally moralistic approach to Christianity, and rather than the daring path of repentance, where uh, 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 as we as we would say in recovery, a fearless and searching moral inventory, fearless—that's like synonymous with daring—a fearless and searching moral inventory. Um, that is a stock phrase from the Blue Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. When we do that in our life of repentance, when instead of doing that, I should say, we just live Christianity as this sterile, miserable, uh, externally moralistic thing without taking a fearless and searching moral inventory. And then we wonder, it's like, well, where, you know, why, why did the teenagers at our, at our parish not show up? Why are my kids not interested in the faith? Why does no one want to hear about my orthodoxy? Well, if it's, I mean, if that's what we've done, then you found out why. Because here's the thing. If we're presenting, if we're just presenting the Orthodox Christian faith as this more, as this simplistically, uh, superficially moralistic privation from life, that ends up being also very harsh and cold and judgmental. First of all, that's a that's a that is a an incorrect presentation of the gospel, and the people who reject that incorrect presentation are right to reject it. Like I look at how miserable you know it's like it's like what did what did they really reject? Well, they didn't really reject the joy of the gospel. They didn't really reject the life of repentance in Christ, they rejected in many cases some awful misrepresentation of it. And good for them for knowing that's not the real thing. <laughs> you know, we, 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 as priests, we make this mistake sometime, you know, where we look and we're happy someone stays in the church, but man, they're, 
their approach to the Christian faith is just so painfully not on track. And sometimes we're too scared, not daring enough to help them get it right, get it on the right, uh, on a better track because we're like, well, at least they're still in the pews, but they're miserable (laughs) and they're making other people around them miserable. Um, You know, so it's like when, when people look at that and they say, this looks, this doesn't look like what Christ is is describing and and if we're living and and if if their assessment of the way we're living our orthodoxy is right and it's not in accord with Christ then it's like who can blame them for coming to the conclusion they come to and that's where we need to have the fearless and searching moral inventory of saying am i really behaving more lovingly more generously am i really taking a true accounting for myself you know when i when i've done wrong do i swiftly make amends where necessary. I mean, if we're doing those things, a lot of people look and go, wow, yeah, I really would like to be a part of that. Um, But just having this simplistic external moralism will keep that from ever happening. And I think the people who reject the simplistic moral externalism are not wrong for doing so. It's just tragic that they don't realize that there is a right way to do it. They, they stop too early too. They go, oh, well, that's not right. And they reject it instead of going, that's not right. Let's ho- head towards the right thing. Um, they also stop too soon. But it's a little bit more understandable, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, I we've mentioned this before. And uh, I see a, a, a heroism within the, the millennials that I'm starting to encounter more and more as they as they get older and start making the decision to either come toward the church or go away from the church. And the ones that avocado toast in the morning, (laughs) avocado toast. I like avocado toast. Am I, am I not, I'm now a millennial. I'll be dipped. Anyway. Um, I'm, I see a heroism within them because they're not content. The ones that I'm, I'm encountering, they're not content to have, a very basic moralistic Christianity. They want to be transformed. They want the transformative nature of the church to be revealed. They think that their predecessors, the, the generations that have gone before them, are, are exactly who Jesus was talking to in the Revelation when he says, I wish that you were hot or cold. And they want a hot church. And if it's not hot, they they don't want anything to do with it. They they want Christ and they want his church. And I see a real heroic kernel in that because the, the what it took to get the church to where it is today was, I'm not going to call it a laziness, but just uh, whatever it was, we'll leave it at that. I don't know exactly what it was. They're not content with it. They want more, which is a really beautiful sign. That, that I will. I agree with that. I, I I would much rather have people who say like, if you want to turn those people away, I hate to say it. It's usually the boomer crowd that'll ask like, where where are they? Where are the younger generation? And the thing that the younger generation hates is gimmicks. It's like the very you know kind of the the folksy acoustic guitar gimmicks. That's the best way to lose them. Uh, be the gospel, be the Orthodox Church, it authentically, daringly, without apology. They will flock to that. Like, I, I agree with you. I agree with you on this one. Um, the, the the fact that the the fact that millennials and and younger people actually want the church to be authentically the church, if it's going to be the church at all, if they're going to be there, they want it to be authentic. It's like great. Like, so they're you know, if they're there. That's the thing now. It's like now in ministry, it's like, well, if people are bothering to show up now without any societal pressure, well, then give them the real deal. Uncut. You know, give it to them straight, daringly. Without question. And, you know, and we can't, there's this weird, there's this weird uh, sentiment or, or shadowiness that, that we get, that we get caught up into, right? As, as we've been talking about all the law all along, the devil finds all sorts of really clever ways to infiltrate our our spiritual life. He finds the chinks in our armor, whether it be uh, 
fighting crusades that we shouldn't be fighting, whether it be ignoring our own spiritual inventory, whether it be through uh, cultural moralism, whether it be through or or just being milk toast. I mean, he's he finds all these ways to infiltrate our life and to try to destroy the church, but we have to fight. You know, we we can't. The church is at war. Kyriosabaoth, right? The Lord of the armies, like we've said before, the Father Damic mentioned as well, that he is the Lord of the armies and that the church is his army that we are fighting. And there uh, was a scene in, I think it was Two Towers from the Lord of the Rings, where uh, the two Hobbit characters, Merry and Pippin, are with the Ent Treebeard. And the two hobbits are dialoguing with one another. And one of them says, let's just go back to the Shire. And I think it was Mary who said to Pippin, he said, don't you understand? If we don't fight, if we don't go to war now, there'll be no Shire. It won't exist because they'll come for you there. They're coming for you there. And then it's like, if we don't, and the analogy is, is like, if we don't, stand up and fight now. If we don't take a spiritual inventory now and look at ourselves realistically and take that take the opportunity to prepare now for the battle that is at hand, what's going to be left? Will there be anything left? That's why I, I called these millennials heroic, because in a way, that attitude is going to shape and help preserve and save the church for the next generation who comes behind us because they will have fought to preserve and to to protect the integrity of the church the thing that is able to save and to save and to protect the church against uh, the sinfulness of man which is really a beautiful uh, thing to see in these uh in these youngsters that catch so much of our uh, flack yeah and yeah, and I think that the, you know, again, uh, I think that that sincerity and that desire for sincerity is really where we ought to hang our hat. The like what you were saying about the Shire thing, but see, that's why it's so important to take that fearless and searching moral inventory and to have the view of our own repentance. Because what we're talking about, the whole thrust of this episode is that knowing what those actual objective moral evils are and which hills are the ones we need to storm and die on is not always so straightforward. It's not always obvious. So like, you know, like when are, when when do, you know, when do we know, like it's time to, Hey, you got to keep trudging towards Mordor or, or whatever. When, you know, this daredevil keep trying to save Hell's Kitchen. I mean, when are when are, when do we look and say we have to fight this evil now today? That we have to expend everything overcoming it, or there is no tomorrow. There's a time for that, right? There are definitely moments in history where that's the case, and there are other times where we can look and say we're tilting at windmills, and the problem is elsewhere. And if we are attentive to our own soul and we're attentive to the malaise and unrepentedness within our own soul, we have a better chance by the grace of Christ and the Holy Spirit of discerning that. And that's, I think, what I was taking away from your previous comment is like, well, yeah, uh, there is a time to drive forward because if we don't confront this evil now, we're, we're not, you know, there is no tomorrow. Well, I mean, look at in your example, right? The, the two hobbits talking about that. Um, I mean, one of them had to ask the question, would it be better for us to go home? The other one had to discern, no, and here's why. But if we're not at, but they both had at that point in the story, they both have a wealth of data and experience to draw upon to say, no, objectively, we understand the threat here and they'll come for us there too. If that question had been posed to them at the beginning of the story, they might have chosen differently and been wrong. 
So the way we gain that experience, the way we gain that battle-tested experience is the life of repentance, is the being attentive over our own soul. When we've tilted, uh, when we've, when we're, when we're taking a fearless and searching moral inventory and we've, and we've tilted at our share of, um, of spiritual windmills and we've lost our share of, uh, of battles, spiritual battles and had to come to repentance, then we can start to look at things and say, hey, this does look like one of those hills to go fight on, or it doesn't. So that, that's another reason why taking the inventory of one's soul constantly and a constant repentant turning towards Christ is, is essential because it may not be obvious. You may not know the difference as well as you think you do. Because when we talk about, you know, this whole time we've been talking about kind of the misguided simplistic moralist, superficial moralist, but make no mistake, that's not how they think of themselves. They indeed believe that they are dying on the right hill. We might say that they're off base, but their their intentions are there. So it's like they're looking and saying, we think that we are crusading on the right crusade. And what I'm saying is if we gain the experience in Christ of discerning the evil within our own heart, we are more likely to not head out on the wrong crusades. And we may discern the right crusade where no one else sees it. There's a lot of very, there's a lot of very uh, worthy spiritual movements in the world that really start with one person who sees the vi- the prophetic vision of God where no one else does. I mean, seriously. So it's like, it, so that's the other side. It's not just what you avoid. It's not just avoiding the windmills and the wrong crusade. It's also heading out on the right battles and pointing in the right battlefield uh, and not getting diverted and knowing where you actually need to head. And again, the, 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 proving ground for all of that is the repentance of your own heart. So we shouldn't even look down on the people who are maybe they're tilting at a few windmills because if we're honest, we've all tilted at a few of our own. We've all been Don Quixote and thought we were fighting giants when we were just spinning our wheels. We've done that. And, And in the moment of doing that, we all think that we're getting it right. So that's where a measure of compassion has to come in. And... And, and, and but yeah, so but that's what I'd say. It's like you've got to know the difference. And if you're not attentive to your own soul, you might not be able to tell on your own steam. No doubt. There's really no doubt to that. I, I like that. Uh, what did you say? Tilting at your own windmill. Because we, at windmills, man. You can quote Tolkien, but I'm going with Cervantes. Why not, man? Yeah, man. And, uh, I like that because I thought about that. It's my Tolkien Cervantes reference. Oh my goodness! It's just never mind Father Michael and his puns. It's his Tolkien Cervantes. Look, I just want I just want to I just want to thank you for uh, for having me here today. And and it's a it's a my way of saying that is just a Tolkien of my appreciation. Um, Thank you, thank you. We're we're gonna exhaust that one. one, No one, uh, no one thanks me for that. No one thanks. Really. It's, it's it's a bad hobbit I've gotten into. Tilting at wind, tilting at windmills. I've thought about this before. It's like, why are we as human beings? What? Why do we? Why do we not wait for? Why are we so inclined to go out and do it ourselves? Right? We don't wait for the Lord to act. We don't wait for the keros. Sometimes the battle, the battles come to us, and the battles that have to be fought are not always obvious, but they come to us, and we find ourselves on the field and with no other choice. And then there's battles that we choose to fight. And I think sometimes we're a little too quick to fight those battles. We're ill-equipped. We're fighting outside of our capacity. We're fighting outside of our purview. Like if I'm fighting for social justice in LA and I'm ignoring the, the homeless person here in Wyoming, what did I do? Fought the wrong war. Fought the wrong battle. 
fought the wrong battle with the right intent. And I think that has an awful lot to do with what we've talked about for this entire hour is fighting is like this desire to fight and to do the right thing, but missing what the right thing is, lacking the the discernment and the ability to judge between that that which we should do and that which we should not do. And an and over eagerness to go out and fight might be an indicator that you, you might be inclined to fight the wrong battle right now. Well, I would say, I would say that very often it's easier to tilt at the windmills. Like look at a windmill. It's got the size to be a giant and it's got a certain amount of very controlled faux danger. Like if you get too close to the blades on a windmill, they can hit you. So you can say, look at me, I dodged that thing, but you didn't really have to do that to begin with. Um, it, externally, right? It's got some dimensions that make it a very easy target. And I think a lot of the false battles that we fight are just that. Like they, we look and we go, that's that's an easy one. That's an easy candidate. That's an easy thing to take pot shots at because it doesn't pose a real threat. Not really, right? Like Quixote has to tilt towards the windmills. The windmills aren't coming after him, you know? And so it's very easy to tilt at and attack at things that aren't really posing a real threat. Um, it's another thing to get in the way of an actual threat. You know, so I'm fond of pointing out when Christ says, blessed are the peacemakers, uh, it in, the word he uses, is on this. And he doesn't say, blessed are the peace preservers or the peace prefers. He says, is on this. And is on this is literally which means those who create peace, the makers of peace. Well, you can only make something that doesn't already exist, right? Like if you're creating peace, it means you're in a situation where there's not peace. Because if there's already peace, if there's already harmony, then you're not creating anything. You're just preserving it. So if there's already peace and you just keep the peace, you're not a peacemaker. You're just a peace preserver. But Christ is saying, well, blessed are the peacemakers, which means you've got to go where there's the opposite of peace. You've got to go where there's the opposite of safety and harmony and overcome whatever that chaos is and then create peace in its place. That's a much more robust task. You have to be able to encounter evil because you're it, it, the only way you can create peace is you've got to be somewhere where it doesn't exist. So the real battles that you have to fight they're often going to involve an actual threat, not the not the the very convenient, easy paper tiger, and that's and 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 that's that that's maybe that's a good part of discerning, you know, the the, the paper tiger, the windmill. I, I wouldn't say that'll get us a hundred percent of the way there, but I think it's a good consideration on the table. But. So, so what you're telling me is that I need to, I'm playing devil's advocate. It's not everybody catches my sarcasm. Uh, so what you're saying is that the, the peacemaker is the one who runs out and seeks to make peace in all of their friends' lives and to make sure that Christian peace is found in the world through, through all these crusades, right? And we're going to make this come full circle. Isn't that how we make peace? Or, or do we make peace within ourselves and then that peace overflows uh, from, a, from a peaceful life? I, I would suggest, I would posit, I would submit, there's a word, I would submit that it's the latter. That, that, our, that if you want to go to war to make peace, endeavor to make peace within your own soul so that you're not angry, so that you're not bitter. So you're not chasing after all these crusades to change the world. Change yourself first. Like St. Um, Seraphim Sarab said, save yourself and thousands around you will be saved. That's how it's done, my friends. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And, and you know, and the, the reality there is too, if you don't, if you don't take that fearless and searching moral inventory, you'll just end up doing it again. 
You like whatever the conflict is that you're seeking to change all the externals for. Um, if you don't fix what's wrong in your own soul and repent within your own life, you will just end up in the same problem again. You will just end up in the same war again, in the same fight again, because the same, the same spiritual malaise that led to it all in the first place hasn't been addressed. So if you really, if you really want to solve the problem, that's the root. And, and then that's why, you know, like, I mean, truth be told, you look at all that. This is why St. Paul says, um, you know, he talks about the fruits of the spirit and he says, you know, kindness, patience, love, self-mastery and so forth and so on against such there is no law. It's like, yeah, I mean, if you really actually lived out the teachings of Christ, there's, you know, a lot of these problems would just be memories in the distant past, but we don't live in an ideal world and we've still allowed the devil a foothold. So there still is a good fight to fight. And I think that's a decent place to stop. I appreciate you uh, jumping on today. We, this was, this was fun. We, this was a very, I, I think we both understood what we wanted to say, but it was definitely a complex, uh, topic to go down, but I'm glad we did because it, it touches on stuff that I think we all live through. And so I'm, I'm glad we did. So I want to encourage our listeners to uh, get out there and keep fighting the good fight and to treat their orthodoxy as, and to see, understand that the orthodoxy is real. This is not something that we just say, this is reality itself. So don't compartmentalize your life and have your religious stuff over there in the rest of your life. It's no, no, this is life. This is truth. I agree with you very much, Father Michael. I enjoyed this conversation. It helped me personally immensely. And I would just have one admonition for those people out there listening. Uh, as you're taking that daring moral inventory, don't give up if you make an improper diagnosis. I remember a car I had once that was giving me all sorts of fits. I couldn't figure out how to fix it. Had it taken to a mechanic. The mechanic changed about, I think, six different parts over the course of a week and couldn't get the silly thing running. And then a light bulb went off in my mind. It's like, okay, all these things failed. It has to be this one thing. And it was that one thing. It was very simple. It was a $5 part in about 15 minutes worth of time that took a week and a half to diagnose and to figure out because we weren't approaching it from the right direction. But be patient, be diligent, be daring, and be willing to fail. And thank you, Father, again, for being with us. Why don't you remind us where we can find this podcast online and on social media? Yes, absolutely. Uh, so, of course, you can find us on our main platform, Anchor FM, uh, which shares out to Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and of course on social media and uh, on the Battlefield Podcast at, uh, on Facebook and Instagram. And of course, on the Facebook page, we also share other related content. Uh, keep Keep fighting the good fight. Thank you so much for tuning in.